You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Eric, great to get you on Real Vision. I've been wanting to sit down and chat with you for a while, so it's good to get you here. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, listen, for those people who don't know you, I'd love to hear, firstly, your background, you know, and then how you got into this whole space, because you've been in this space for a long time. So I'd love to yeah. hear some of the story. Be- becoming an old man. Uh, <laughs> so... so um, I got very interested in monetary economics sort of during the financial crisis. And I was living in Dubai. Uh, I was just out of college and I saw the whole world burning for six months before it ever hit Dubai. And it was kind of the surreal time where everything felt fine where I was, but the rest of the world was falling apart. And I got really interested in, in Austrian economics uh, and banking generally, what money was, how it worked, all these things. Um, and you know, kind of came to the conclusion during that period that that money was really like the most important good in society, and that because it was the most important good, it was the most important good to not be centrally planned or controlled. Um, but I didn't really have a, a good suggestion or alternative. Um, goals has obviously been money for a long time, but but had fallen out of out of practice with almost everyone. So, but I was ready for when, when I heard of Bitcoin, I was, I was so eager and excited for some kind of solution like that. Who, who told you, how did you hear? What was the, what was the seeding of you, of you and Bitcoin? Uh, so it was a, a friend of mine named Keith Ammo. Uh, he was a fellow free stater in New Hampshire. Uh, he's now a, a state congressman, I believe in New Hampshire. Um, I had joined the free state project uh, after coming back from, from Dubai. And so he had posted something on, Facebook in May of 2011 um, about Bitcoin. And after reading a couple articles, I absolutely fell in love with it. Um, it. It just seemed to me like the the fact that it couldn't be stopped and the fact that you could move value anywhere instantly at near zero cost and, and anyone could do it from anywhere, to me seemed like the most obviously valuable invention I'd ever seen. So fell in love with it. And uh, it's been my my hobby and passion and career ever since then. So what was your, when you first, because everybody's idea of both Bitcoin and then the whole space, kind of, it changes, right? You hang on to a narrative to start with. You think, right, I get it. And then you realize you don't get anything. And then suddenly the whole thing opens up. What was your original narrative that you kind of got? It was it was the stateless money transfer of value. Yeah, with Bitcoin, the narrative I've had since the beginning has stayed the same. This, As you put it, the stateless money. A, a form of money that um, was beyond borders, that was not attached to a flag, that was immutable, that no one could print more of, um, and that didn't censor people. And it was just like this neutral ground for the world that couldn't be stopped. And that that has very much remained what Bitcoin is to me and, and why I think it's been so successful. What has changed is that the industry has gone from just that, which itself is a, a huge invention, to that plus all these other different crypto experiments. 
many of which aren't going anywhere interesting, many of which are changing the world and everything in between. And so I, I like to use this analogy of like a, this tree and the, the trunk of the tree is Bitcoin. And from that trunk, many different projects have sprung out. And so it's now just completely overwhelming because there's so much stuff going on. <laughs> but that core stateless money is great. Yeah, we'll dig into some of that in a bit. I just want to hear your, so you hear about Bitcoin and then you you decide to start a business or what, what did you do now? What yeah, was the I, thing that you did once you found out about it? Well, at first it wasn't really something, like I immediately realized there was a lot of entrepreneurial potential in that. Um, but it was very small. I mean, the entire market cap of Bitcoin back then was probably like $30 million. Um, and really, I just wanted to, it was my it was my hobby. It was like the thing that distracted me from my responsible job. And at that time, I was just doing like freelance marketing. So that was an easy thing to do less and less of. Um, and kind of my, my first real job in Bitcoin, uh, I had uh, gotten in touch with uh, Charlie. Charlie Shrem, who was down in New York City. Um, Roger Veer was his first investor. Uh, Roger and I had met at the first Bitcoin conference in August of 2011 in New York City. Um, Roger suggested to Charlie that he hire me to do marketing for BitInstant. So I was sort of the, the third person um, to join Charlie's little crew. And then I had a job. You know, Then I was making like a salary and I moved down to the big city. And um, that, was, that was super exciting. Uh, BitInstant, for those who don't know, it was essentially a way of of moving money quickly into Mt. Gox. So, um, you know, normally if you had to send money to Mt. Gox, which was the first uh, big Bitcoin exchange, you had to wire internationally to Japan, and you know, wiring sucks, especially internationally. So it can take you know five days or two weeks, and you never quite know. So um, Charlie had figured out a pretty clever way of basically letting people deposit cash, you know, at like 7-Eleven type places. And once we knew that it was going to be in our account, we would immediately credit them with the same amount of, of money at Mt. Gox, which we already had there. So people would get money in Mt. Gox in an hour instead of in two weeks, which was hugely, uh, hugely exciting and useful for people. So that was really my, my first job. And um, during that time is when I also started uh, Satoshi Dice, which, which started as a side project and ended up becoming the like the the world's biggest Bitcoin gambling site and half of all the Bitcoin transactions for the first several years of its existence. Um, so that kind of, <laughs> that got a little out of control. Uh, <laughs> but those were, those two projects were like my, you know, late 2011, 2012 timeframe. And then what happened when Mount Gox went under? How did you get affected by all of that? Yeah, well, I had already, I had left BitInstant by then. Um, the Winklevi... Uh, had invested in BitInstant, and we had a falling out. Um, I left, moved down to Panama, and uh, it was about nine months later, um, so late 2013, when Mt. Gox started having serious issues, and I think it was the very start of 2014 when it collapsed. So at that point, my business wasn't reliant at all on Mt. Gox, but obviously it devastated the whole industry, and um, it was a, a cataclysmic event. And then what happened with the Satoshi dice? Where did you go with that? Yeah, so Satoshi dice became very successful. Um, it taught me a lot about statistical variance, which I did not appreciate. You know, like everyone knows that the house wins, but Satoshi dice had very thin margins, and so I would go through weeks or months of losing money as the house, 
and, and this like paranoia of like, did someone figure out an exploit was constantly in my mind. That was very stressful. But what was more stressful was I knew that Bitcoin was itself going to be a very controversial technology. You know, like stateless money is is truly something new and is going to make a lot of enemies. And I was a very outspoken proponent of Bitcoin. I was also the public face and, and founder of Satoshi Dice, the world's biggest gambling site. Gray area, whether that was legal or not, you know, uh, as gambling, it depends on the jurisdiction. And so um, I realized that if I wanted to really like help Bitcoin grow, just from an optics and legal risk perspective, I shouldn't also be running the world's biggest Bitcoin casino. Like I kind of <laughs> had to like go underground and do the casino or stay as Eric Borges and be the Bitcoin proponent. Um, and my goal with, with all this is really to advance Bitcoin, to advance this idea of stateless money. And so um, I made the hard decision to, to sell Satoshi Dice. And, you know, that sucked. It was my first big success and something I was really uh, proud to have built uh, and had to, you know, kind of let it go in order to, uh, in order to stick with Bitcoin. And then you started Shapeshift. Yeah, Shapeshift. The idea for that was early 2014. This was pre-Ethereum. Um, Bitcoin was, you know, I think 98% of all crypto value, 99%. And I saw, you know, I, I used to be a Bitcoin maximalist and I hated all these other projects and coins. But I came to the realization, two things. One, these other projects were actually part of the decentralization that Bitcoin was was, was so important to Bitcoin. Um, and two, that a lot of these things weren't just trying to be like a narrow form of money, but they were actually trying to do something different. And with those two, that kind of broke me out of that spell of the tribalism and just thinking, you know, Bitcoin is the be all end all of everything. And I realized that like for this industry to grow, people needed an easy, safe way to convert one digital asset into another. And Mt. Gox had just happened. Um, I wanted to do something from what I had learned with Satoshi Dice of how you can build a service that is non-custodial, where you're not holding any funds. A user sends a transaction in and the service sends a transaction right back. Same model as Satoshi Dice. Um, so that's where that's where the idea for uh, for Shapeshift came from. I mean, this Bitcoin maximalism thing is is really prevalent right now. I mean, you see it a lot on Twitter. I see it a lot on Twitter. Yeah. Why? It drives me crazy. Well, yeah, me too. But what? Why do you think it is? Um, like, I've got my own thoughts on it, but I'd love to hear why why you think it's so strong. I think the fundamental reason is. Is that there's a very human tendency toward tribalism. Like humans evolved in these small tribes. There's a lot of survival reasons why people have affection and trust for those around them and, and fear for those who are not part of their tribe. Like that's ingrained into our minds. And it expresses itself, I think, in a lot of ways from people who are vehement sports fans, right? And they love their team and they hate every other team. Um, to people who love their political party and hate every other political party. And uh, it just, it, it has emerged in, in crypto, right? And you have all these different crypto projects. You can understand why someone who, who owns and loves Bitcoin would look at these other projects as, as competition or just dismiss them as scams or as a distraction. And so they, they fall into this kind of perpetuating spell of, needing to justify why Bitcoin is better than anything else and why those things are always, always bad. And it, I think it's very poisonous. It, it leads to a, 
whatever facts they they learn about or whatever stories they hear, they start painting in the Bitcoin good, other coin bad narrative, right? So every time they hear something bad about Ethereum, they'll think about that and they'll regurgitate the bad thing and they'll recite the bad thing about Ethereum on Twitter. And every time they hear a bad thing about Bitcoin, they'll do the opposite. They'll they'll justify it. They'll dismiss it. They'll defend it. They will uh, come up with uh, a long argument about why it's not actually that big of a deal. And so they'll defend their tribe and they will ridicule the other tribe. And it just is like this perpetuating phenomenon. And uh, yeah, it's it sucks. It's like really a distraction. I mean, one of the things that, I mean, I looked at this and one of the things I realized is Bitcoin is the world's greatest behavioral economics experiment. So it's an incentive-based system, loosely based around Metcalfe's law, which means that basically, if you think of Metcalfe's law as applied to Facebook, the more people you get, so you get your, your friend on that you went to school with, your utility value from that is you get more connections with people. With Bitcoin, you get more money because it goes up, yep. right? So that everybody is massively incentivized to think of it as their own network and everything else therefore is a threat. You and I would come at it and say, no, the whole thing is the network. Mm-hmm. And so none of this is a threat. They're all complements to each other. But the but the really strong behavioral economics of it, if I get you to convert from Ethereum to here, then the value of my network goes up. It's kind of like genius. Yeah, and that's that's what really sucks about it because it, it distracts people from the important picture, right? Like it's great to make money. I've made lots of money in crypto, the vast majority from the appreciation in Bitcoin itself. That's awesome. I love that. But that's not the point. The point is not to make a bunch of money. There's a lot of ways to do that in life. The point is to actually change how money works and how finance works and how the entire global economic exchange apparatus works at a fundamental level. And anything that advances that cause should be applauded. And anything that harms that cause, I think, is is fair game for ridicule. So, you know, I see these different experiments um, as attempts at, at moving this out, right? Even if Bitcoin is the best money the world has ever seen, you know, and I, I've made the argument for close to a decade, money itself is not the sum total of financial interaction. You need tooling, you need financial services, right? You need all these different things that money itself is not. And Ethereum comes along and allows people to start building some of this tooling in a decentralized way. So profoundly important, and like so, so inspiring and magical as magical as money doing that. When Ethereum first came along, and you were Eric, the Bitcoin maximalist, so you see yeah. Ethereum, what did you think? Um, to be honest, I didn't understand it enough at the at the start. So I did not buy into its token sale. You know, I've known Vitalik since he was like 18, writing for Bitcoin Magazine. So I, you know, I I should have been a little closer and like ready to pounce on that opportunity. But the fault lies with me because I did not understand this whole concept of smart contracts and Turing complete blockchain. It, it did not make sense to me at the time. Uh, I understand it now, but back then I, I didn't. So I kind of just thought as this weird thing and I um, wasn't quite sure what to make of it, but was kind of skeptical. Yeah, because it's harder to pin a simple narrative on because by definition, it's actually quite difficult. You know, Bitcoin's very easy. I can go to my mom and say, it's kind of digital gold. And she'll yeah. sort of understand it. Yeah. But Ethereum, that starts to become more complicated. 
Totally. Yeah, it's it's absolutely a more complicated thing. Absolutely. So, okay, let's ignore Bitcoin for now and look at the world that's developing in terms of all the digital assets. What is your kind of vision? You know, we all change our visions as we go, as we adapt to new things. But where do you think this is all going um, in the system of exchange of value, the Internet of value, all, all of the various components? Where is your big picture view? Yeah, my big picture view is that the world is currently in the process of transforming from a financial system and a whole economy uh, based on fiat and banks, sort of an analog financial system, um, to a financial system based on digital currency and blockchains. And that that transformation is, you know, two, three decades long. Uh, will be completely upending of many current orders, uh, will have many enemies, but ultimately will substantially advance humanity forward, will create wealth, will make people on net far better off uh, and bring about a much more transparent, fair, honest, and immutable financial system. So that's that's the big picture. That's the goal. So let's talk about the battles to get there. So there are, there are battles to be had. One is, we talked about the maximalism and the tribalism that kind of needs to come together. But I think that will happen over time, you know, as things... You know, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I mean, there are 12 years into Bitcoin and, you know, six, seven years into Ethereum. It's kind of not very far. It's not very long to build a mutual trust amongst tribes yet. Yeah, that's that's fair. Um I don't know what solves that. It, it's certainly something that bothers me a lot. One thing that solves it is when people realize who the actual enemy is, right? The enemy of the Bitcoin maximalist is not, it's not Vitalik. It's, it's the central banker who will go out on TV in front of 300 million people and say how Bitcoin is used for terrorism and crime. Well, that was, that's exactly the point is that the hurdles we've got to get through are the battle with the owners of the current financial architecture. So that's the central banks, the banking system, the governments, the regulators, all of that. The regulators are making more noises. You must be closer to that. What's your view on regulation and where it goes? Regardless of what your personal view is, because nobody wants to be regulated, but the realities, you're in business and you kind of know. Yeah, there's there's a, a very profound tension the tension is this new technology came out that allows money to move without central control. And there is an entire government regulatory apparatus of controlling money. Very entrenched. Most people support it. Most people believe it should exist. So it's, it's popular in some ways. Um, and it's how things are done. And then this technology comes along that refuses to listen, can't listen, is immutable, can't be, can't be turned off. These things are clashing and they will they will cause all sorts of little battles within that clash. Right? It's like the the unmovable stone and the what is it, the 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 god who has all the strength in the universe and the unmovable stone. It's like one of those paradigms, right? Um and part of part of the challenge, I think, of of Bitcoiners, of people who care about this technology, is helping regulators understand that many of their goals will still be supported, right? Like 
I don't think regulators are evil generally. I think they're usually good people that tend to harm others without realizing it. And they, a lot of them have noble goals. I think many of those goals will be met by crypto, by Bitcoin. Many of those goals will be even advanced further. To, you know, like which regulator doesn't want a transparent financial system that reduces fraud, right? Like that should be, everyone should agree on that. Um, but also at the same time, it will prevent them from having some control and some surveillance that they're used to. And they're going to have to get over that. They're going to have to realize like, okay, some of this power that I've always had and that I think I should have is going away. And how much do I want to fight it? How many people do I want to throw in prison for the crime of advocating an open, honest form of money? And like that question, I think, is where a lot of the, a lot of the attention will come. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. And how do you think that gets solved? Is it by them saying, fine, we own the on ramps and off ramps to the taxation system to payments within society. So Bitcoin operates with that outside of that. Because the other view is the maximalist view, which is, well, everybody just adopts Bitcoin as full money. How do you see this play out? Yeah, I I ultimately do believe that everyone will eventually move to Bitcoin as full money, that like fiat currencies will go away. Um, they will go, they will, they fall apart on their own, right? They collapse on their own because they're printed yeah. into oblivion. Yeah. Uh, and they've never had to deal with something like Bitcoin as an alternative. They always just like go into the next fiat currency. Now that there is like a credible alternative emerging, they have a much bigger challenge. So uh, I do think humanity moves to Bitcoin over time. I think fiat falls apart. Um, this is going to make governments' lives harder because currently they fund themselves in three ways. They tax, they borrow, which is just taxing in the future, and they print. Those three ways are how governments are funded. And as the world moves to Bitcoin, that third way goes away entirely. They will not be able to print anymore. They'll still be able to tax. They'll still be able to borrow. Uh, but they will not be able to print money anymore. And so that will necessarily mean that governments have to shrink uh, on a relative basis. Um, personally, I find that the most you know, glorious thing that could come out of Bitcoin growing is the, the reduction in coercive government. Um, but a lot of people obviously don't agree with that. What about the kind of tensions <clears throat> around the, the, this is going back to Bitcoin, is the tensions around who's mining it, you know, the, the, the concentration amongst a few countries. How does, yeah. how does that play into the, I mean, it's, it's obviously suboptimal. I think from everybody would agree, except, you know, maybe the Chinese would not agree, but it's suboptimal. How does that get solved over time? Because people are working on it, and it's very interesting to see how that gets solved. Yeah, um, two points there. One is the question of who is mining, how centralized that is, and where it's being mined has been a controversy for 10 years. You know, from back when I was on the Bitcoin forums, like people were talking about this thing. Um, but I think what people forget is they'll look at like a static analysis of what mining looks like, and they'll come to some conclusion like, you know, 60% of mining is in China, right? Like, and maybe that's factually correct. 
What they don't realize is it's not a static thing. It's a dynamic thing. It's a dynamic system and the mining can move and has moved around the world. So to whatever degree mining in any territory or place becomes problematic or is clamped down on, the mining industry itself, the hash power, migrates somewhere else. That that can cause disruption. It's not like a perfectly smooth process, but it's not like the mines are stuck there. It's not like we have to assume that in 10 years, 60% of mining will, will be in China. We like, we don't know that. We don't know where the mining industry will evolve. So I think once people realize that that is a very fluid industry and it can change where needed, it's anti-fragile, uh, hopefully that will allay some of the concerns. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, mining is just cost-based and if people can figure out cheaper cost-based, um, you know, hence why Russia does a decent amount of mining because they've got cold weather and a lot of power. I mean, mm -hmm. It's yeah, kind of a no-brainer, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I've I've heard, I have not validated this, but I've heard that the Bitcoin mines in Iceland consume more energy than all of the people in Iceland. <laughs> well, there's only about 12 and a half people in Iceland, so probably yeah, true. Yeah, I think there's there's 300,000, something like that. So it's not huge, obviously. Um, and this is, of course, green energy there. Like this is thermal thermal energy from uh, from the earth. So yeah, um, mining, mining moves around and changes. And that's just... A fun part of how crypto works. Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of the broader space, what's exciting you right now? What are you looking at and thinking, huh, this is a game changer, or this could be something interesting? Because it's very difficult. As you said, it's overwhelming. I mean, I can't get my head around everything that's going on. There's so much innovation, so much trial and error and failure and success, all at the same time. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's overwhelming for those of us who are in it 24-7. Um, what I'm really most excited about right now is the, is the rise of decentralized exchanges. Um, 20, like the, the crypto theme of 2020 was decentralized exchanges. It was Uniswap and, and the projects like that. If you can sorry, if you can explain yeah. to people a little bit, some people who are not familiar with how that works, how do they work? What are they? Okay, so... Bitcoin is obviously decentralized. You can move it anywhere, like no one can stop you. But um, exchange of digital assets has largely been done in centralized custodial exchanges, generally order book exchanges. People put a bunch of crypto in there, they put up their bids and their asks, and trading happens. And it's quite efficient. It's dangerous because of the custodial risk. But it is also like, it diminishes the immutability and the decentralization of the system as a whole. Um, so for a long time, people have been talking about decentralized exchange and have known that it is possible. And there have been various iterations of, of decentralized exchanges, basically building a, building a platform where people can trade digital assets um, without a central company behind it. Uh, and that didn't really take off because the latency of blockchains meant order book exchanges just didn't work very well. Um, they were too slow, too costly. So the volume and the liquidity kept staying at the centralized exchanges. Uh, about two years ago, two years ago is when Uniswap launched. Um, and it wasn't the first with this model, but it certainly popularized it. There is a new model of exchange with, uh, called liquidity pools. And it's not an order book at all. You essentially have a pair like Bitcoin and S and um, people put both those assets into a liquidity pool. Whatever the ratio of those assets is, is what determines the price. So people put assets into this pool. And when you trade from one to the other, 
the price you get is based on the ratio of the pool. The pool tends to be um, the same price as order book exchanges because arbitrage keeps them in line. So um, what it means is that you don't need this sort of high frequency throughput of a centralized order book exchange in order to get high liquidity, um, high value trading going on. And uh, Uniswap is the is the exchange that has really like turned this from a yes it can be done to a wow this is actually being highly used. Uniswap is currently doing hundreds of millions of dollars a day in transaction volume. They have surpassed Coinbase uh, on certain days, and this is just like just getting started. Um, there are and and not only is it's not like Uniswap came along and it is the decentralized exchange. Uniswap has spawned like an entire field of people experimenting with decentralized exchanges. It's open source code. People are copying it and creating other things. There's SushiSwap, which was like a copy paste of Uniswap. And now it's doing hundreds of millions of dollars a day. These things are changing so fast. And um, what it means is that the decentralization that everyone has enjoyed on the money protocol layer is moving one layer higher to the exchange layer also. And that's very exciting. That, that helps the system grow into a more immutable uh, more decentralized whole. Um, so decentralized exchanges are are just, you know, really where people people should understand them. Anyone in crypto needs to understand how Uniswap works. That's like table stakes uh, for the industry. We've seen a bunch of kind of the, the the pool of liquidity moving from one to the other. Talk me through some of the pitfalls that people have been learning as they've been building out these businesses because it's not been a, a clear run of it, has it? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to pretend that decentralized exchanges are a panacea. They have different trade-offs and different problems. Instead of trusting a central server, you're trusting protocol code. It can have bugs, it can have hacks, it can have all sorts of horrible problems, but people will fix those. However many problems there are, they will get fixed and iterated on. Um, so that's important. Two is that this does not solve the fiat stuff. You cannot trade fiat in a decentralized way, but you can trade stable coins in a decentralized way. So as you've seen the rise of stable coins, you know, Tether is like 20 or $30 billion in existence at this point. People are using um, cryptocurrency stable coins as their fiat proxy. And they're never going back to banks. They're never going back to the fiat at the banks. They're just, if they want to de-risk out of the volatile crypto, they go into a stable crypto. Um, so that's, that's been really cool. And, and those can trade on DEXs all day long. So where do DEXs go from here? Because right now, I mean, you know, as the whole world gets tokenized and everything becomes a digital transfer of value, yeah. it sounds like there's something really big here and I can't get my head around it. Yes. Uh, they will consume more and more trade volume. Um, the big step for DEXs now is to go out of Ethereum. All DEXs today generally are Ethereum-based and you can only trade Ethereum and ERC-20 tokens. Right. Now, that's still the majority of assets, but it doesn't include Bitcoin, the most important asset of all, right? It doesn't include many of the other important chains on the base layer. It doesn't include Monero, for example. The next step is doing cross-chain decentralized trading at scale with liquidity pools. Um, there is a project called ThorChain that is doing that. They have not fully launched yet, so they still need to prove some things. But if that works as intended, you will be able to trade native Bitcoin on the Bitcoin chain for native Ethereum on the Ethereum chain through a decentralized, highly liquid trade. Um, that will be an absolute game changer. And I think that will be the 
that will be the theme of this year of 2021 is that that will that will start happening the interoperability layer is something that seems that it's coming as well as everybody builds out these kind of networks and protocols and applications there's a feeling that there's another layer to come on top of that that ties it all together to make it seamless what's your thoughts on that and that's what it sounds like Thor is doing really there within that somewhat. We currently have these islands of chains, right? Bitcoin, and then you have Ethereum with all its tokens on it, but these things don't really talk to each other. A few projects have been trying to solve that. I'd say the most prominent one is, is Cosmos. Um, Cosmos is essentially trying to build a, an ecosystem of chains that can talk to each other, uh, of bridges between disparate chains so that a Bitcoin can go into a Bitcoin address, a one-to-one backed token on a Cosmos zone is created that can move across to a different zone in Cosmos and then be converted to some other asset on some other chain, all of which uh, have no counterparties, all of which have no um, central custodians or anything. So Cosmos is the most ambitious. Uh, It is launching this thing called IBC, inter-blockchain communication, like just in a week or two. It's been four years in the works. uh, And so that will be big. And again, that hasn't been proven yet. So it's sort of like still needs to vet itself. But um, if that happens, you'll start seeing these chains be able to have their own advantages and still work with each other, right? Bitcoin has advantages that Ethereum can't and doesn't have and vice versa. And a world that has both of these things easily composable together is is a better world. So Cosmos is doing that. Um, I believe Polkadot is trying to do that as well, uh, and maybe a couple others. But those are those are the two leading Quant, ones. Quant Network is another one, isn't it? Quant, I think, was the other one that we talked a lot about. Quant. Yeah, don't know that one. Quant Network. Yeah, see, um, can't, can't keep up with it all. No, it's impossible. <laughs> but it's fascinating because, you know, like you and I are talking now in a way that back in 1996 would have seemed inconceivable. Yeah. Right. So I don't know what type of computer you're on. We corresponded on Twitter, which is a platform. I'm using a different computer to you. I'm in a different continent. We're using video. All of this stuff, we don't care anything about what drives it. Mm-hmm. I just know I click on Zoom and you're there. Yeah. Right. There's so much interoperability that once you, we stop becoming tribal really when we don't care. We don't care how I send you money, and it could go three different chains to get there. Mm-hmm. You know, and that becomes super interesting. Yeah, and your your analogy with computers and like this video talk we're doing right now, the 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 reason that works is if you have this borderless, super inexpensive uh, transmission of communication, right? You can speak, and I can hear you, and vice versa, and you can talk to anyone anywhere in the world like this. You don't need a license to go communicate with a video call with someone else. You don't need to walk down the street to like file a request to have a call and then wait a week for your call to start. And yet all that exists in the banking system. It's, it's preposterous. And when that's <laughs> gone, when all that's gone and people look back at like, even in the year 2020, an international wire would take multiple days. They're like, this is an analogy I like to use, you know, back when I was first promoting Bitcoin was like, it, you can more quickly FedEx an anvil with cash tied to it to Japan, right? If you're willing to pay for the shipping, you can get an anvil there with cash tied to it faster than a digital wire. Why? 
it's preposterous. The money that's going there is already digital. It's going in a digital bank account to another digital bank account. What what's what's the problem? Um, the problem the problem is that banks have zero desire to compete with each other as they are appendages of the state, and there has been no fundamental financial innovation at the banking and currency layer because government is the monopoly provider of money. And what you've done now is you've cracked open the market to start innovating with money and finance in a way that it's never been able to do before. And you're going to start to see uh, you're going to start to see advancements that should have happened, you know, a decade or two ago uh, and are way overdue. Yeah. I mean, I grew up in that environment, you know, I was investment banking and almost all of it is going to get dismantled over time. Mm-hmm. Investment banking, less so because there's the advisory part of the business that generates a lot of fees for people. But the money center banks, I mean, with the rise of central bank digital currencies coming as well, it sounds like the governments themselves have kind of got the gun to the head of the banks to put them out of their misery. <laughs> you know, yeah. because you don't need a bank. You just need a fintech layer if right. you've got central bank digital currencies. Now, I know that's no solution in the world that we're looking at, but it's the it's the growing acceptance of the digital world that even the central banks kind of realize. Yeah, well, and banks exist because they used to have a really important purpose, right? Money was like a physical metal. If you had a bunch of it, you needed a really safe place to put it. You don't put that in your house. You go to a brick building that's easy to get to and they are trustworthy and you leave your money in the brick building. Money has all become digital and those brick buildings are still there. And that's still where you go for your money and still where you go to like send a transaction. It's it's a legacy habit of how humans used to work when money used to be metal and physical. Uh, it's amazing that it's taken so long to get out of that system. Crypto has broken that wide open. And, you know, my, it, ch- children today will grow up, I think, without ever having bank accounts. They, they yeah. just will not need them. No, if when you look at it, it's objectively hilarious now compared to where the rest of the world is in terms of technology. Yeah. And yeah. To finance feels like it's the last part. Well, finance and probably government are the last two things yet to be fully disrupted by technology. Yeah. Yeah, government's a, that's a hard nut to crack. Um, <laughs> crypto certainly allows people to govern things in a much more resilient and robust and immutable way. Uh, there is an irony in that, like the, when the government looks at crypto people, they see a bunch of these like anarchist types. But what the anarchist types have actually built is a system of a true system of laws and not of men, a system of code based laws that are transparent, objective, execute exactly as written always, regardless of who you are, versus the subjective system of 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 men, right, of government, which is subjective, hard to understand arcane, hard to, you know, hard to change, hard to read, um, horribly unfair in certain circumstances to certain types of people based on who they are, what country they were born in, you know, like all that kind of stuff. Code doesn't care. Code doesn't care. It brings objective money now, objective governance of important systems to humanity. And that's, that's a beautiful thing. And I, I would hope most people start to see that as a really important step for humanity. The step they're going to take, however, is central bank digital currencies. Yeah. <laughs> There's the world that we want and we're going to probably and the world that we're being delivered, which is more um, more regulation. Fine, we get it. 
and central bank digital currencies. Talk me through how you're thinking of this, what it means for stable coins, you know, because there's yeah. a war to be fought there. You know, we talked about the battles that need to take place. This is one of them. Who owns the rails? Yeah. So central bank uh, digital currencies are interesting. There, for the first couple of years that people were talking about these, I dismissed it with kind of like a, you know, kind of a snide comment of like, fiat currency is already digital, right? You already have central bank digital currencies. It's called dollars. It's called euros. It's called yen. Those are digital currencies created by central banks. What's the big deal? Um, I've changed my tune a little bit because central bank digital currencies as conceived are, are different only in bad ways, which is the surveillance, right? They will be surveilled top to bottom, 100% and controlled completely by their respective governments. Whereas, whereas central bank digital currencies, fiat today is fairly surveilled, fairly controlled, but not, not completely. And you can pull it out and have cash, you know, like there are, there are leaks in that system. The new central bank digital currencies as being conceived will be a, com a completely totalitarian in the accurate sense of that term money system for the planet. And you are going to see the battle between free and open money and central bank digital currency. I know which one is going to win because one of them is far more efficient and people are profit maximizing creatures. And even if it takes a decade or two longer than it should, Humanity will not suffer the burden and the cost of a totalitarian money system when there is a free market, open, uh, immutable, objective alternative. So I know where it is going, but it, it's going to be a big struggle to get there. And uh, I hope it doesn't you know, claim too many people in the process. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N ads.com. Yeah, I mean, I called it the Bitcoin life raft for that because as we move to this regime, look, there's going to be some great benefits of programmable money, be able to blend fiscal and monetary policy. But in the end, all it means is that they're going to print more money. And just use it in different and more unique ways. And you need a way out of it. And Bitcoin is the perfect way out. How do you how do you get around the fact that in the battle, they're going to stop the on-ramps and off-ramps if the battle gets too hot? So it becomes hard for you to take your value out and use it in non-digital forms. So physical forms. Let's say you want to buy a house, buy a yeah. car, whatever it is, send your kids to school, whatever it is. How do you do that? That's yeah. the thing that worries me, actually, because, you know, there are banks that just will not accept money that comes out of the crypto system. For sure. I've had three bank accounts closed just because I've received fiat that came from a crypto company. Um, really? Now, that's just the bank, you know, doing their own risk mitigation. You know, that, that's not a directive from the Fed. Not yet. Um, yeah, it's a good question. So first, governments can't stop the on and off ramps, but they can make them very problematic and they can drive them underground, right? So it's important to realize they can't be stopped. They can just go underground. Two, I don't think all countries will act in unison here. I think some will be much more oppressive than others. Um, and three, you know, at least in the US, and maybe I'm being naive, there is a hope that enough people I almost want to laugh saying this because maybe it's just too naive. 
that enough people understand constitutional limits to the federal government that that outright bans have to actually have basis in the constitution. Um, that doesn't just happen automatically. Now, people can easily say, yeah, but look how easily they ban gold, right? But the gold one is an interesting one because I look at this. It was only the US that banned gold. So US gold went to Switzerland and the rest of the world continued with gold. So people's argument, well, they banned gold. I'm like, horseshit. One point. country in the world at one time banned gold. Well, guess what? Turkey's currently banned gold. A bunch of countries banned gold because they don't want capital flight. And they'll do it with crypto periodically. But as you say, there's always somewhere else that will accept it. Because mm. it's deemed to have value and it's trusted, it's got value. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think what can happen is if there's major crackdown, you know, Crypto, Bitcoin, its value can fall by a lot, 50, 70, 90% just from that kind of crackdown. Yeah. Um, but okay, so it falls from a million dollars to $100,000 and it goes underground for several years. Like it, it already won, right? It, humanity will move to it either five years from now or 20 years from now. It, it already won. Um, and it has, it has been tested through these market cycles, I think, quite quite well. So I, you know, ultimately it's incumbent on anyone who cares about this stuff to to speak about why governments sh shouldn't fight it, and and hopefully enough people within government will realize that actually, yeah, this is where where things are going, and even if we could harm it for a while, what what value is that? You know, like what what value is that for humanity long term? And and get enough people thinking that. But there's an issue within that whole construct which is not the contract of does it survive. You know, it is a cockroach. It's almost impossible to kill. Yeah. I get that. But there's a big damage to a system of money where the value of money falls 90%. Yeah. Right. We understand we're still probably in the Metcalfe's law adoption effect phase, so we haven't got to full price discovery. But let's yeah. say we are at a million dollars, and in some hypothetical future, the IMF will get together and say, in all of these countries, you cannot trade with us unless you stop it. You know, the value falls and there'll be some sort of black market versus white market probably in, in crypto. It just, it depends how long it takes to recover from that. I mean, again, yeah. I, I'm no believer in a catastrophic failure from from a ban. I'm just always trying to think it through. Yeah, it would be a real problem. You know, I don't want to minimize that. It would be a real problem. But Bitcoin's history is one of, you know, defeating real problems over and over and over. Also, I think you have to keep in mind the the point at which national governments, IMF, are outright trying to ban it, is a point where their own currencies are falling apart. Like that, that's what that's what will cause them to really fear it so much that they go through that effort. Um, and that's a situation where inflation is probably really painful for a lot of people. Um, stock markets have, have fallen apart or are only up in inflated terms. There will be a lot of skepticism toward governments trying to do that, and um, they'll be basically trying to prevent people from owning Bitcoin and putting them in the alternative of their own fiat currencies, which are falling apart. Right. So that that's a that's going to be a tall order, uh, and I don't know that they would be successful with that. Here's another way around it, and I haven't thought this through: is if the community starts building out the digital exchange of value of physical assets more. So we've talked about tokenization of real estate and stuff like that. The things that we 
want to cash in our lifestyle chips for, which happen to be in dollars or whatever currency you live in, right? The things that you need to operate in the physical world. The faster we build out that, the harder it is to stop then. Because then, because of the decentralized nature, it's almost impossible to stop. Sure, there has to be a tax, probably. You have to pay somebody for the tax of selling a house. I get it. We live in a society, that's the government rules. But it's very hard to stop the exchange of value. And, and I feel like we haven't built that part out yet. I, I, I have a slightly different perspective. I think the Bitcoin industry started by building that out, right? Like the, the whole narrative in the beginning of Bitcoin was like, let's get people accepting this as a means of payment. That was a huge uphill battle and didn't get any traction, but all the infrastructure is there. There are already companies that will process Bitcoin payments, other types of crypto payments for for different things. It's just not used much, but all that stuff's already already built and, and ready. Like uh, I, you know, my my Jeep I bought with Bitcoin back in 20 late 2013. I actually bought a brand new Jeep from a dealership with Bitcoin. That was seven years ago. So it can happen. It does happen. Um, and I think in a situation where people were, were really worried about receiving fiat because it was losing value quickly or the banking system was becoming less reliable, you would start to see a, a real interest in like in, in the seller uh, receiving something that they could trust more. Um, and whether that's Bitcoin or whether that's a, an algorithmic stable coin, which isn't as volatile, uh, that infrastructure, I, I don't think is going to be too big of a challenge. So final question about the kind of overall universe of, of um, what's interesting that's been going on. So obviously, it's been the last year was the year of uh, decentralized exchanges, but also DeFi. What's your thought of, on DeFi and, and how that's evolving? Because that has been slightly hilarious. There's been good things, bad things, a lot of experimentation, a few scams. I mean, it's been a great story, but it yeah. feels like something real is happening here. Yeah, absolutely. Something real is there. I think a good analogy is like the ICO days. And in the ICO days, you basically had a, a profoundly cool and important invention, right? The ability to raise capital quickly, effortlessly from around the world, regardless of who was involved. Um, that was really powerful. And then to give them, and to not just raise the capital, but then to have a, a liquid transferable token that represented a stake in that project. That was a great invention. People took that invention and did all sorts of things. A lot of it total nonsense, garbage, a lot of it scams, but some actual projects that were totally legitimate, very credible teams, they raised money and they actually delivered. And so you have this core of like legitimate innovation happening inside this big bubble of speculation and nonsense. And that was true of the ICO days and it's true of DeFi today. You have this core good teams building like legitimately innovative projects many of which will be profoundly important, surrounded by all sorts of nonsense and noise and, and scams. And you have to just understand that it's both of those things. And people argue on Twitter all day of like, is DeFi a scam or is DeFi legit? Is DeFi a scam or is it legit? It's both. Depends on the specific projects and the attributes of that project. Yeah, my view on this has been, I wrote some articles about it, is that in the VC world, so early stage company building something from an idea, You've generally got a team of people who will vet it, good or bad. They you know, get a bunch of those wrong, but there's some process. Within the token world, because there's a lot of retail in the space, these tokens actually trade quite richly to start with. So there's an incentive to take your money and run. Now, good projects, sure, 
the founders may sell some tokens and some of the original buyers of the offering will buy them. But then over time, the proper projects come to the surface because, you know, the quality business. And, you know, if you had real-time mark-to-market valuations on VC, it'd be terrifying, much like yeah. it is with <laughs> tokens or DeFi. You know, nobody yeah. wants to sleep at night with that. But, you That's, know, you know, you've started two businesses. You know how terrifying they are. It's such a such a good point, that immediate price discovery that are in crypto tokens. When a project falls apart and its token declines by 95 or 98%, people are like, no one should have invested it. It was a scam. Most projects go that way, right? Most projects will fail. They just do not get off the ground. And the reason you don't see it in startups as much is because it's opaque. The equity is held by some VCs and some investors. It is not traded. You do not know what the price is for years often. And they'll just like liquidate and go out of business without ever having a traded price. So so crypto ICOs, tokens have, have brought a price and a transparency and a liquidity to those shares, which I think is really, really important and profound. But yeah, I mean, people need to do their due diligence. Just because they make a flashy white paper and they give you all these promises, don't throw $100,000 at them. And, you know, fools and their money are soon parted. You know, there, there's a part of how markets work, which is that when people make bad decisions, they need to be losing money on average. And when people are making good decisions on average, they need to be making money. Crypto like puts that right in the face of the world. And some people don't can't handle that because they see so many people making bad decisions and they blame it on on crypto without realizing like it is just a mirror a clearer mirror for humanity itself yeah i'm absolutely right can't agree more eric listen fascinating to speak to you really enjoyed it yeah um thanks so much and good luck with everything you're up to awesome super exciting times thanks raul thanks for having me on all right take care podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lips and ads.com now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com